Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, we have historian Michael Lee Flem, and Michael and I went deep down the rabbit hole of talking about Atlantis, its origins, where it is, where it was, and some new and unique evidence that he has been able to uncover going to areas that most historians don't go into. So if you like tales of ancient civilizations and lost people and so on, well, this is the episode for you. Let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Michael LaFlam. How you doing, Michael? How you doing, Alex? I'm good, man. I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. We are going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, uh, the yeah. lost city of Atlantis, which is legendary to say the least. And I've had a few people on the show talk about it from a channeling perspective, which is something I've always liked. Well, if you have a channel, hey, hey man, who built the pyramids? Hey, can yeah. you tell us about that kind of stuff? And sure. it's been a fascinating, those episodes have been fascinating. Uh, but your work is really interesting on Atlantis and your perspective of how you did research and how you kind of mm. came along to where you are right now. So first question to you, man, is what got you interested in Atlantis? You know, it's people always ask me and I wish I had a, a good answer. I think, you know, I'm a history professor. That's my day job. And I must have just run across it in teaching ancient history survey courses and things like this, where, you know, if you have a textbook or just a survey book, um, you're going to run up against when did civilization begin, you know, and mm. of course, you know, I had a little bit more leeway um, because I wasn't tenure track. You know, I was just the adjunct gun for hire MA, mm. as you see. Um, so I could take a little bit more liberty because I didn't have somebody from the faculty kind of watching over my shoulder. And so I would teach, for example, Graham Hancock books, you know, in my oh, ancient history class, I would get assign, out like, of here. No, no, I did. And, you know, I would call the bookstore and say, you have to order 50 copies of magicians of the gods or fingerprints of the gods. Uh -huh. And I wouldn't tell them anything. I would just, it just say, looks like a history book. Yeah. No yeah, one's going to read it. Here's but. your reading, read chapter one, and then, you know, look at their expressions and they'd say, you know, to my great surprise, they wouldn't actually complain. They'd be like, oh, I haven't heard this before, but that makes perfect sense, you know? And I kind of workshopped it with them for years, um, just kind of over the course of a couple semesters. And then I really started getting into um, remote viewing and things like what Dean Radin was studying at the, you know, Noetics Institute. And then I started reading um, 
actual books on remote viewing from like people like uh, Pat Price or uh, I believe it's like Lynn Buchanan. And, you know, I was a pretty materialist based person um, myself, just kind of um, aware of spiritual traditions and channeling, but never really aware of the extent to which, you know, people could do this accurately um, and how it was used by the DIA, the CIA. And, you know, inevitably that led me to people like Edgar Casey or Frederick Spencer Oliver, who was a really important source because very few people had ever talked about this kid from the 1800s who wrote a book about my life in 11,160 BC. Um, and so I took all of my own training as, you know, a historian who studies the history of philosophy mainly. And, you know, probably the first quarter of the book is that it's like, this is the history of how this story has been accounted for and discussed in antiquity across different cultures, um, pre-Platonic sources, Egyptian sources, um, and then of course, an unpacking of like Plato's two dialogues. But then it switches into, well, here are, here's a chronology of the first time this was really ever channeled, you know, because a lot of people, when they talk about channeled sources, they just focus on say, modern sources or Edgar Cayce, um, who are incredibly important. But I wanted to see as a historian, like when was the first channeled account of this story? Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be really one of the most bizarre and almost impossible to explain at face value, unless it indeed was a truly channeled account. Because what Frederick Oliver said, um, and just a little background, he's a 17 year old kid living in the wild west in 1882, 1886, on 1886, on the frontier, mm -hmm. the closing of the frontier in Eureka, California, next to Mount Shasta. Oh. Okay. And he suddenly starts hearing this voice in his head that basically says, I'm an occult adept. My name is Philos. I need you to tell my story of my past life in Atlantis in the year 11,160 B.C. And this kid over three years comes home and not in a trance in waking life, but in a kind of intense focus starts automatically writing. Sometimes he says backwards, sometimes forwards, different chapters, different pages out of order. A 400 roughly page book that is a, to me, the most compelling account of Atlantis I've ever read in my life. And it's astounding because the things he's talking about in this book did not exist in 1882 or 1886. He's talking about holographic smartphones. He's talking about video surveillance technology. He's talking about craft that can go underwater, in the air, in the high stratosphere that are made of aluminum and cigar shaped before flight existed. And then he has an internal physics, an internal chemistry, and a historical explanation of the final five centuries of the Atlantean timeline that almost exactly corroborate and support what Plato said. But this was a kid who had never read any of the classics. He was uneducated by his own admission and by testimonies of his friends. He was just a kid who was a minor 
with worked with his dad in a so you mean so you mine. mean there was so there wasn't a lot of copies of Plato's dialogues running around in the old Wild Wild West? No, I don't think so. I don't, <laughs> yeah, think, I don't think so. That wasn't yeah. easy reading back then. No, no. <laughs> and by his own admission, he said I was a lazy student. I was a kind of a an idiot. Um, I don't know anything about this when I'm not in this kind of clear audience trance. Um, and he even said, I didn't even want to do this because I lost a lot of friends. My parents thought I was going crazy. But here it is. And that book has been out, you know, and also, I should add, that book was finished in 1880, 1889, roughly, is when he claims he finished it. And he died young in um, 1899, at the around the age of 33. He actually died. And that book was never published in his own lifetime. His mother kept it in a drawer because it was just handwritten notes. And she actually didn't publish it until 1905. And then it got picked up by a kind of bigger publisher in like 1920, which is when people started reading it. So when people say, well, he just did it to be sensational, it's like he lost friends. His parents thought he was going crazy and he never published it. And it's impossible that he could have just been copying from later channelers because he was the first one to do it. Yes, yeah, so before he, Edgar Casey. This before is before Edgar Casey. The Loris this is Playboy, before Edgar Casey. Okay. All oh. of these people, all of them. And that, so I wanted to show people like, because I was a skeptic, I didn't go into this book trying to prove the historical reality of Atlantis. I actually just did a seven year investigation and said, if I find evidence for or against, I'm just going to lay it out. And to my great surprise, even though I don't give any kind of <clears throat> conclusion or suggestion of what you should think, I'm pretty neutral. And, you know, the reviews have always been very complimentary on like, I appreciate that you don't tell me what to think. You just show me the evidence. But it's astounding, Alex, the the level of detail in this book, A Dweller on Two Planets. That's what the book was later titled or he titled it that, I think, in the first preface. But that's what the book is called, A Dweller on Two Planets. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's amazing because when Casey started channeling about Atlantis about 40 years, 50 years, really, after this book was first dictated in the Wild West, it's unbelievable because Casey, who had never read the book, is corroborating many of the dates, facts, technology of this civilization. So for that reason, I really wanted to, you know, take a book that was just going to be kind of like a intellectual history of the discussion and really now make it a book about how I can corroborate clairvoyant sources with archaeology, geology myths from different cultures and things like linguistic similarities that shouldn't be there and really show people not only that there's a lot of evidence for this civilization, but that there's a lot of unexplained things that channelers have said that just cannot be written off. Well, let me ask you this. I'd love to hear your point of it because I mean, obviously I have a lot of channels on the show mm. uh, and I've been fascinated with channels for most of my life. Mm. Uh, I, I found Edgar Casey and, um, and even um, some yogis that I've studied mm. talk about this kind of stuff as well. What is your, from a historic a historian's point of view, and and I'm assuming you've become a little less material based. Oh, I had to. Af, af, after all of this, 
Yeah. What, what, what's your take on channeling and the information that, like you said, can't really be ignored as much as they want to ignore mm, Right. They, they can't be ignored anymore. Right. You know, there was a guy who read my book who suggested a book um, after I had published mine called this, I believe it's called The Secret Vaults of History um, by, um, by an author uh, named Schwartz, I believe. And in that book, there's a Polish channel from World War II who was actually executed by the Nazis. And his name was Osiewiki, I believe, Stefan Osiewiki. And people don't really talk about him, but in that book, it's fascinating because the author shows that the, some of the most renowned scientists and you know political figures from Europe discovered this guy and before the war would gather in his house and like archaeologists would come, anthropologists would come and they would give him like an artifact that they knew the history of, you know, so an artifact from, say, the Bronze Age or something. Mm -hmm. And this is a guy who didn't know anything about this. He would go into a kind of semi-waking trance and he would pinpoint to the century and the culture what this object was. And in fact, he would even tell you, like, this is what I'm seeing at the time. This object existed at that time. And, you know, when you see things like that and it was studied, it was in a controlled experiment with and done 50 times by university professors, witnesses, similar with Casey. You know, mm -hmm. I really tried to show people it wasn't just word of mouth. These are 14,000 transcripts still contained in the, you know, ARE library. And as I show in the book, Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, all sent professors to debunk Edgar Casey's medical readings that could not do it. They, they mm -hmm. couldn't do it because they witnessed him diagnosing people, you know, with spinal injuries or different endocrinological, endocrinological problems um, that he could not have known he's not a medical doctor. And yet when the real doctor investigated, they're like, that's exactly where the fracture in the dorsal lumbar is. And how do you know any of this? They thought he was memorizing from almanacs and things like this. Um, so it is real. I just think it's incredibly difficult to convince somebody who's <laughs> stuck in like a very materialistic Western modern paradigm because we generally outside of say quantum physics is probably the closest most people can come to non-material non-locality but it's like to me if you can get your mind around the you know wave particle theory why is it difficult to think that you know this is that strange like we we know that's true so shouldn't that have greater implications if like particles have essentially consciousness or awareness that's not strange enough for you you know why couldn't people be accessing what Edgar Casey called like the super conscious mind the oversoul the akashic records the cloud computing database of the world why is that so strange you know well it was because those particles don't have a face and don't have a religion attached to them it will there you go and people are just when they're so stuck to what they've been programmed to if you right. take one, it's like a it's like a Jenga puzzle. You yes. pull one thing out, yeah, it starts to shake the foundation a bit, and they don't like it. No, and like you know, it. I'm really glad you said that because I always tell people. I think even in the book I mentioned in the epilogue, um, 
you know, as we were joking uh, before the show, you know, I went to Catholic school. Um, and even though my parents were not, you know, they didn't press, they didn't care what I believe. But I, on my own, just from being in that world for 16 years almost, you know, I believed some aspects of Orthodox Christianity for a long time. And then I went to college and I studied Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. And I was like, had a nervous breakdown because my whole worldview was shattered. Then I went to graduate school and studied the history of the Enlightenment and atheism. And I became a hardcore, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche book on my shoulder everywhere I went. And then I got into this, you know, got in a few fights at bars with people. Then I got to this and I was like, wait a minute. Like now I got to go back, not all the way, but I have to scale back the existentialist materialist view because now I'm being presented with evidence, just like an investigator, this contradicting my materialistic worldview. And so this book for me was really like a personal investigation that I wanted to then share with um, the world because it changed me. And it led to a lot of really cool new discoveries about not just channeling, but the subject of Atlantis, you know? So what is the most significant historical record or source that mentions Atlantis? Would it be this kid? Well, you know, channeled source, I would say absolutely. A dweller on two planets to me, along with the, you know, of of Casey's 14,000 general readings, 500 roughly were on Atlantis. And those are invaluable. And thank God, you know, there was a searchable Edgar Casey archive at the time where you could actually enter search terms instead of, you know, at literally reading through five or 14,000 transcripts. Um, so I was able to read all five. I was able to, first of all, find, because they're not collated. I was able to find all 500 Edgar Casey readings, read them all. And then over a year, almost put together like his story of all the characters and the timeline. And then kind of superimpose his idea over Frederick Oliver's ideas and see where they line up and then put Plato on top of that. And, and it was almost like a perfect alignment, which is statistically impossible. I'm going to be honest with you. Sure. Um, but as far as historical sources, I would say, you know, Plato's is the most famous one. And as I mentioned in the first chapter of the book, it's not the only one. It's not even the only one in ancient Greece. It's just we don't have a record, full record of, say, Hellenicus's book, Atlantis, or Solon wrote a poem called Atlantis that's been really? lost. Really? Yeah. And also, I mean, recall that the Library of Alexandria and the Serapium were destroyed three times and looted by the Vatican. So it's like we don't even have probably 0.1% of the ancient texts, you know? But another one that's fascinating is the Egyptian, um, the Turin King Papyrus, or the King's List, the Turin King's List, which itself talks about the reign of the demigods and the gods. And that reign, the demigods, I believe, reign ends around 9,800 BC, which is almost 9,600 BC timeline in Plato's account, which he also got from Solon, who got it from Egypt. So it's like, the Atlantean story goes back to Egypt. That's its origin point. Plato was just transmitting it to a Greek audience through Solon. And it's fascinating that an uneducated man from Hopkinsville, Kentucky, who had never read anything like this, said 
the Atlanteans went to Egypt, to the Yucatan, and to the Pyrenees Mountains, where the Basque country is. And they did that around 10,500 BC. And they built the pyramids at that time. And they rebooted Atlantean culture. And it's like, well, that's kind of exactly what Plato said. So we should probably pay a little bit more attention to these sources, you know? So Plato was uh, pretty, pretty on point then, from what I, from what you're saying. Yeah, and I always tell people, <clears throat> you know, according to Edgar Casey, the he doesn't go into too much detail about the origins, like the absolute beginnings of Atlantis, because in his readings, the first political event, <clears throat> or the first, <clears throat> should I say, like development in this culture, which, you know would be um, the first destruction, which was the result of a technological disaster, misapplication. He puts that at 50,722 BC. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And he says at that time, the world was being overrun by the what he calls the animal menace, which again, that's it, real. That's the megafauna. That's the saber-toothed tigers, the mammoths, the you know hosts, eagles that were <laughs> flying around up to a thousand years ago. There was still those eagles that could eat people, mm -hmm. creatures in the sea. And he said Edgar Casey on a couch in 1932, um, not being an anthropologist or an evolutionary <laughs> biologist, he said. To combat the animal menace, many different cultures and leaders around the world, not just in Atlantis, which for him at that time was a continent that stretched the entire mid-Atlantic ridge, basically, was the continent at that time of Atlantis. And Casey said, world leaders got together. They sent out a broadcast, so suggesting they have wireless communication or radio, they all met each other in flying machines, primitive at this time. He says they were made from the hides of stretched elephants and filled with gas and powered by a combination of entraining with a crystal device and push-pull from a gas. So basically like a balloon that was yeah. guided along a pathway, which again is an extremely strange thing to say because Plato himself said, there were a lot of elephants on the island of Atlantis. In a close read of that text, Plato says that. So it's interesting Casey said that. And they met and they decided we're going to use a directed energy weapon, which he's not clear. It was either beamed. He just says from the stratosphere. So you must assume it was, you know, orbital or some sort of device that maybe was like harp pinged off the stratosphere. It's not clear because he's again saying this in 1932 from his couch in a trance. Um, so Casey says this technology was deployed and the plan was to send a directed energy beam into volcanic openings around the earth in a hopes of destroying the food supply of certain megafaunal populations because they just couldn't deal with these animals overrunning the earth even though they had advanced cities and everything, it was just becoming inconvenient for them. And he said that precipitated the first breakup of the continent of Atlantis around 50,000 BC. And he said at the same time, there was a magnetic pole shift naturally taking place 
that was exacerbated by this. And he said after that point, the continent became five islands. And then there was a second disruption in 28,000 BC. What happened in the intervening 22,000 years? I don't claim to know. And after the second destruction, now it's three islands. And so that's the story Plato's telling is the third final iteration of Atlantis, where it's basically three large islands centered around the Azores from Plato's description and from Casey's description. And so that's why it's kind of a complicated story is because it used to be a continent, then it was five islands, then it was three. And that's why when people say, well, you know, what are you talking about? This pyramid off the coast of Cuba has anything to do with Atlantis. And it's like, well, perhaps that's from an earlier time, you know, or what are you talking about? There's, you know, remnants of Atlantis in, in Egypt. You're suggesting the pyramid, you know, that's not where Plato said it was. Well, it's like in Plato's account, it's a large Island outside of the Straits of Gibraltar that had colonies all through the Mediterranean and had already mapped the continent, he says. So he's referring to the Americas. So Plato was, Amer- Plato was aware of the Americas in 360 BC. And then where does, does Antarctica play into any of this? Because now there's in stuff- my In my yeah. research, I actually don't talk about the Antarctic connection at all because other people have already written books on that. But it's entirely possible. The only time I mention Antarctica in the book is how in the Piri Reis map from 1513, yeah. there's yeah. a map of Antarctica without the ice. And Charles Hapgood sent that map to the Air Force in the 60s and said, can you explain this? And their answer, I put it in the book. They said, this is accurate to like the same degree as our survey that we did in the 20th century. But that's impossible given the knowledge of, you know, Renaissance Turkey. That's impossible that this could be done. Where did you get this, Mr. Hapgood? Like, we've never seen this map before. So... I don't know. I don't know. I think it's very possible because, look, if this was a civilization that in Edgar Casey's description basically lasted 40,000 years, okay? Jesus. 40,000 years over God knows how many different iterations, languages, cultures, peoples. <clears throat> Although he says that the people that became the Iroquois tribe in North America were the original settlers of atlantis at its beginnings Gener- generationally be- generationally yeah like the original race was actually native american in possession of this high technology and so <clears throat> you know if you had a culture that could do these things and that in frederick oliver's account became more advanced than us on a level of basically star wars um right before its final destruction about a thousand years before it declined into the kind of bronze age chariot and sailing vessel story that Plato tells, Frederick Oliver has an addendum where he says, we reached a level of technology that, I mean, he's describing Star Wars. That's what he's talking about. I'm on a flying craft talking to a princess through a holographic projector. Mm -hmm. In 1886, he's saying this Mm -hmm. (laughs) before the franchise was invented. And, you know, in Oliver's account, that high technology kind of went by the wayside for the final five to 800 years because the leadership, he said, had become as electricity. 
which perhaps is his explanation of transhumanism or AI or something. And he said that leadership basically checked out and left humanity on the final island of Poside, the capital island. They left them to their own devices and they devolved into basically the state that Plato would have been describing, which is chariots fighting with spears, sailing in boats, you know, because most people that have a problem with the Atlantis story, they have a problem with the high technology. Like they can wrap their mind around, okay, maybe there was an island circular city on an island that fought with Greek technology. We get that. That's weird, but we can wrap our minds around that. We've seen Indiana Jones. We can maybe, maybe. Right. But where's all this Star Wars stuff coming from? And most people think that's a, you know, post Star Wars franchise or post modern age, like retrospective projection onto Plato's story. And that's why A Dweller on Two Planets was such a critical source, because he explains the high technology. It's a critical source in two ways, because he's describing technology that didn't exist anywhere on Earth in 1886. That's source number one. But number two, he's describing where that went and how and how the civilization descended by 10,000 BC into the civilization that was recorded by the Egyptians who inherited that story and passed to Plato, which makes more sense, actually. Um, so it was interesting because it was so many different, you know, is it an island? Is it a continent? What's the timeline? Um, and I would say, look, just like I said, it was a global civilization that had its center in the mid-Atlantic, wink, you know, ocean whose namesake we still use to this day. I went to Florida Atlantic University. You know, there is no etymological explanation for that word. And over time was whittled down to these five, then three islands. And that's the story Plato would have been telling. So, so, so according to, it was Casey, I think you said that there was mm. this, this iteration, this five island or this continent down to five island, down to three Right. thing um that we kind of basically went from the beginnings which is not there's not a lot of talk or any story about the origins of like how they mm, be, where well, they come from tell me well yeah that that's a really interesting somebody once asked edgar casey and again it's such a shame um that there weren't trained anthropologists and historians they were just mainly christian okay. housewives and their and their yeah. husbands <laughs> right <laughs> who are yeah. like hey mr casey uh when did humanity begin like i mean it's it's like the greatest loss to the world <laughs> thank god one day somebody straight up asked him like hey when we use the directed energy weapon like what date was that and then he just shoots out with fifty thousand seven twenty two. we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show which before I answer your question, to give you an example of, I think, why this book has, you know, really been like successful with people on the fence about this is because I just wanted to see. It's like, OK, Casey says there was a, you know, weapon used against the megafauna and it was successful, but it blew up the continent. Is there any evidence of that, of a megafaunal extinction in 50,000 B.C.? Well, 
I looked through the Journal of Quaternary Studies. They have an unknown megafaunal extinction at 50,000 BC, roughly, give or take 100 years, that we can't explain that they say shouldn't really exist because there weren't enough people to hunt these animals. So we can attribute it probably to climate change. So they admitted that both of the things he said were true. There was a climactic shift at 50,000 BC and there was a megafaunal extinction. And it's like, that was unknown even to professionals in that field in 1932, let alone a guy in a trance on a couch in Virginia Beach. Well, before, so before you get to that other answer, because I've studied the Vedic texts a lot and sure. the and Hinduism and, and and where that a lot of their original stories in the Bhagavad Gita mm. in general. Sure. Because they're the oldest quote unquote right. culture and religion, you know, orga- sure. organized situation that right. we have on the planet today. Correct. Um the Bhagavad Gita is talking a lot about things that Casey kind of talked about with yeah. Atlantis with flying machines. Yeah. energy weapons, things like that. In your study, have you connected the Bhagavad Gita stories or things in the Vedic texts or yes. traditions into where we're at now with the last? I have, I have. In fact, in uh, the pre-Platonic sources in the beginning of the book, I mentioned in the Mahabharata, they mention a place called Atala. And they situate it at the same latitude as the Canary Islands, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, and they say it was you know, destroyed after a 10-year war, and it sunk into the Western Ocean. And that predates Plato. And it's not an Egyptian source, you know? And yeah, I mean, in the section, um, I think in chapter four, I talk about what you were mentioning, like the technologies in some of these texts, like Vimanas, energy weapons, you know, perhaps nuclear um or some sort of extremely powerful energy source that destroyed perhaps different cities. Um, And yeah, it is amazing because like, first of all, I mean, Oppenheimer himself said this. Yeah. And again, I always tell people to think it's like, it's fine if you want to say you're smarter than me, you know, Who, who, who the hell am I? But to suggest that, you know, better than Plato and Oppenheimer (laughs) <laughs> and Albert Einstein, by the way, who, by the way, Albert Einstein vouched for everything Charles Hapgood wrote. Okay. Mm-hmm. Albert Einstein used to write letters of recommendation for his earth cross ship theory and his ancient maps. Okay. So even Einstein was on board with this. And so it's fascinating because like you said, Oppenheimer, some people suggest he even got the idea conceptually from this ancient text, you know? And he was asked, and I haven't been able to verify this like 100%, which drives me crazy, but I think there is very good anecdotal evidence that during a Q&A after the dropping of the atomic bomb at Rochester University, allegedly a student asked him, was this the first time we've ever done this? You know, what we just saw on, you know, heard on the radio and saw pictures of in the newspaper. Was this the first time? And he said, well... And he paused. He said, well, in modern times, yes. <laughs> well, there, it's, I just like, found what's out. What's that all? <laughs> well, I, I found out uh, in my research that that scientists have discovered in places in India mm. where they said that some of these battles supposedly took place. Right. That they are finding radiation in the land 
yes. has no explanation, meaning that there's no natural source of the radiation, nor has there ever been a battle in right. recorded history in that area that would have radiation. Right. But yet there's still radiation in those areas, hence where these quote unquote energy weapons were 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 uh, shot. Right. And, you know, um, in Frederick Oliver's account, it's really weird because, again, a 17 year old kid working in a mine in Eureka is not reading the Bhagavad Gita, I'm guessing. <laughs> In yeah, 1886, that, in between in between the dialogues of Plato, he just snuck in the bucket of meat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After he go, comes out of the the silver mine, he goes home and you know has a glass now, of milk. Up. It curls and up with the bucket of meat. Curls up with the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> yeah, on the frontier in 1886. But right, right. He's he says um, like in the story that he channels from 11,160 BC, the story of this man this voice who's telling him I'm using you as a channel. One of the plot arcs is this person who's called Zaim, Z-A-I-L-M, is the name of the protagonist in this story, this incredible, beautiful, like it's a Star Wars, Mm -hmm. Star Wars story. It's crazy. I'm almost convinced Lucas and friends must have heard of this book. I'm really serious about that. Sure. I'm very serious about this because there's too many things that don't, you can't explain. But in the story, the character is a, he becomes a prince. He's a miner who strikes gold. He becomes a prince and runs up the ranks of Atlantean society. And he's actually sent to India, which he calls Suern, S-U-E-R-N, in 11,160 on a diplomatic mission in a flying machine. And, you know, he goes over there and says that they had an extremely advanced civilization but it was different. It was more of like they had reached a point, he said, where they didn't need material weapons of war like the Atlanteans did. So he said he describes a war between Atlantis and India, basically. And he says that we sent our flying ships there to attack them with weapons and their occult leaders could just turn the weapons against us. And he's describing guided missiles in 1886. Right. But it and also, he's like, uh, uh, they could turn the missiles against us and destroyed our our veil fleet. You know, he even what, has a name for it. And, what, and, and, and in, in the Vedic text, they talk about Velixi. And again, it's like, where is this kid getting these things? He's not reading Sanskrit texts. And, and also that makes sense because, I mean, as a, as a country uh, and as a culture, India has always been based much more in the spiritual Right. And in the consciousness aspect of things, which could be a remnant from an advanced culture. Right. From 10,000, 20, 30,000 years ago in that area, which right. was evolved consciously. And there are talks of, there are stories about that as well, where they've evolved so much that they, I mean, the yogic powers, but mm-hmm. on a massive scale right. of being able to manipulate reality, yes. which is, which is stuff that the yogic powers do on a smaller scale but can you imagine twenty thousand well, years of that <laughs> well and it's crazy because the 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 king of atlantis or of mm-hmm. poside the one of the three islands which again is odd because casey said poside for the main <laughs> island oliver said poside and then in plato's account of atlantis there's a statue of poseidon in the capital so i think they're all talking about the island of poside one of three final islands but in the story, it's interesting because the king of Poseidon tells Zaim, 
be very careful how you deal with this Indian king because he can kill even me with just a thought halfway across the world. So be very careful. Like, don't think that there's anything with your weaponry and your ship and all of your, your, by the way, your electric rifle. So he's describing a blaster, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. But what is an electric rifle in 1886? It's like he's talking about a blaster is elect- rifle. Is, elect- is electricity, a th- electricity a thing yet? Oh, a little bit. No, it is. It is. But it's I, like I, the light bulb had been invented in households like four years. No, like the year he started writing it, the first light bulb, I think, from Edison patented. Yeah, so was yeah, in exactly. a house. Right, he doesn't exactly. have electricity in his house. No, definitely. Yeah, it's not, not a it's not a wor- widely known what electricity is or what it does yet at that no, point. No, no. It's right around the same Neither time. are smartphones that can Holograms. project images holographically. Yeah. Neither are, you know, like ships, disc- cigar ships. Yeah. Cigar-shaped flying ships made of aluminum. And then descriptions of how they could transmute clay in Atlantis into aluminum and then a three-page treatise on how that worked we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show and it's like where are you getting this probably from an actual source from the akashic records or the cloud that actually found somebody that was you know able to be used as a vehicle to channel this right. message. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, it's speaking of the Akashic records. This is something that the, the Vedic texts have talked about for thousands of years. Before. Well, and I always tell people like Casey never read, according to any reliable source, anything in Sanskrit or anything remotely involving ancient India. He was a Sunday school teacher who had a sixth grade education and was essentially ignorant in waking life. And yet, when he was asked, like, how are you getting the source? He says from the Akashic records. And then look in a Sanskrit dictionary. What does that word mean in Sanskrit? Akasha. It means ether. And I always tell people, like, what are we using right now to, you know, have this interview? We're using the ethernet. Like, the e- why is it hard to think that <laughs> the universe doesn't have a stronger ethernet called Akasha, which means ether in Sanskrit, and that some people can tap into? That's what Tesla said when people said, how are you coming up with all this? He said, my mind is merely a receiver. That's and, it. Well, and would you agree that Da Vinci was also a channel? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the stuff that he was writing down in the 15th century. Absolutely. I mean. Absolutely. Nostradamus, Da Vinci. Well, all of these people were probably doing the same thing, you know, just in different times. And, yeah, you know, but yeah, Da Vinci probably was looked at as like an alien or something like who, how are you coming up with it? <laughs> like a helicopter? And, heli- what is it? And they actually, what, where was it? I think it was in the, it's either in the Vedic text. I think they, they took, there was design mm. for a flying machine in the Vedic text. Sure. Yeah. Vimanas. And, yeah. And they actually built it. Based on it in a, in a sign in um, I don't know if it was at Berkeley or MIT. Somebody built the damn thing. Not not wide, <laughs> not not a life size, but a sure. small version based on the and it worked. Well, it's always it been fascinating worked. to me because you know there I I believe it's one called the um, Vimana Sastra, which was revealed to be not a complete hoax, but like an extremely shaky source. That if it wasn't like planted as a hoax, 
it was definitely like somebody wrote it in probably early 1910s or 20s and said it was ancient, you know, Sanskrit. And it was sure. reviewed in the 60s. And somebody said, actually, this is not an authentic. But then the ones that have not been debunked, my favorite word, um, the ones that talk about like, like when you get into the Vimana, this is how you start the Mercury engine. And it's like, what? why would there be a manual for a flying machine in a temple in Sanskrit if they didn't have a need for that? Like there, there, there's no need for the manual in a myth. If it's a myth, you know, just like when people say, well, Plato's dialogues, um, you know, in the Timaeus and the Critias, the Atlantis parts of those are myth. And I say, Okay, that's interesting because the first thing he says is, although this story may sound strange, Socrates, every word of it was true, and it's vouched for by Solon, the wisest of the seven sages. So he disclaims it's not a myth. And then if it were a myth, why would you need to describe like the stadia length of the canals? You know, why, right. why would you need that if it's a myth? You know, like, yeah, you don't just, see the details like that. Right. It's like he's describing a historical story. He tells you it's a historically right. true story. Solon right. was a real person who did visit Egypt, you know, and it's like, why are we debating what Plato said? Oh, because we've written hundreds of thousands of articles and textbooks already that say that humanity was in a hunter gathering state. Oh, don't get me started. Yeah, doing nothing like with yeah, their, so, you know, walking on four legs in the, you know, savannas. And it's right, like, no. Yeah. And also, not, make, and also, and also constructing Gobekli Tepe. Yeah. yeah. You're right. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Hunting, yeah, gathering, moving megalithic hunting, objects. No big yeah, deal. Yeah. Carving things in with astronomical accuracy. Uh, sure. That makes all the sense in the world. Like, you, 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 come on. Like, you know, and I think now, though, I think even with conversations like this that are hitting the ether, uh, (laughs) they people are starting to just wake up and go, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense anymore. Even though you've been feeding us this for for so many years. Right. We're starting to think for ourselves here and just go, look, the evidence doesn't it just doesn't make sense. That's where people like Graham Hancock are such, you know, such a blessing because at least he might not be right. But he's asking the questions as an investor. Well, and that's that's all I do in the book, you know. And I think that's why it has been so successful. Is I always loved that Hancock and the people that came, you know, before me in this field, the best ones never told you what to think. They just said, Look, this is what we found. How how is there a map from 1513 that we found in a dusty palace in Istanbul that has a map of Antarctica before it was ever discovered just alone how do you explain that on its surface you know right how do you explain like you said go back tepe you know which isn't a myth it's a archaeological site mm-hmm. that we know was at least you know around ten thousand bc it's like how do you describe that in the current paradigm of hunter gathering but I, I as yeah. i spend like a whole chapter on this exact problem and i bring up gobekli tepe because that really bothered me as a historian like why aren't we updating textbooks why isn't there a ancient history you know like prelude like i used to teach you know for the first month i would just teach these types of things like what do you think about this 
What do you think about, you know, evidence of a comet strike from James Kennett's research? What do you think about that? That's not channeled. What do you think about this? What do you think about the CIA and the DIA using channelers and then documenting their accuracy? You know, and then sending the FBI. Yes, exactly. Sending the FBI to, I believe, uh, Ingo Swan's house when he discovered a secret program that he wasn't supposed to know about. You know, so it's like the government knows this is real. It's just very difficult to replicate. You know, only a handful of people can do it well. Um, Just like a handful of channels had the opportunity in time to not be influenced by, say, Star Wars or the works of, you know, Graham Hancock. Because, again, I, I wanted to show people you can't just say this kid watched Star Wars. There was no Star Wars in 1886. No television. There was a movie. There was no. He didn't have a light bulb. The, the, the first, the first talkies, enough talkies. The first silent films weren't even. They're just no. barely getting off the ground. Barely. Yeah. So I, I really focused on that book because I was like, I remember when I read it, I thought, okay, this is probably from like the fifties or something. I don't know. Right. Right. And I looked at the preface. I'm like, wait, what? Like when? Because the copy I had was published in 1947 or something. And I was like, but wait, when was this written? 1886. Okay, this I'm gonna have to spend time on this one. You know, that's um, fascinating. All right, so we were we, the one question I asked you before: What's the origin? When did this start? How did Atlantis start? Oh, that's right. Yeah, like the original were they hunter gatherers? Did they, well, you know, evolve well, from monkeys? <laughs> well, you know, Casey actually somebody asked him straight up one time, "Did we come from monkeys?" And he said, "Incorrect." Done. That's all he said. He said, no, okay. we did not. Mm-hmm. So he, he rejected Darwin. But, but there's a lot of posters and textbooks already written on that. So we can't go back. Right. And, <laughs> you know, Casey does talk about the like first what he calls like entanglement of the thought forms in material universe, like or in the material of the Earth plane, if you will, not in the universe. Mm-hmm. And he actually puts that at ten and a half million years. And he says, basically, at this time, the atmosphere was different and people weren't really like we would think of them now. But over those millions of years, he said by around a 200,000 BC, which, again, is what the anthropological record today suggests, that Homo sapiens emerged kind of like they are today. But he said that he doesn't really talk about the 200,000 to 100,000. Like what was going on then? We don't know. But we know that around 100,000 BC, Casey does talk about like the early inklings of kind of circular homes being built on the continent of Atlantis. He does talk about that. And it's not like hunter gathering, but it's not the high technology of the Frederick Oliver timeline 90,000 years in the future, which... Again, these are difficult times for me to think about as a historian, because, I mean, think about how much Alex has happened in the last 500 years. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. The last hundred. What are you talking about? Just the last hundred. Yeah. And we went from from where this kid wrote the book to where we are now. So it what is, is life going to be like in the year 92,023? I mean, at that I mean, at that point we become energy. <laughs> I mean, like like they did. Like they yeah, did. Like, let it, 
Well, that's what that's what something that the Elon Musk said was really interesting. He's like, do you think we're in a simulation? He goes, right now, it's in, inconceivable for us to think that. But we've only right. had this technology for 100 years. Let's throw 10,000 yeah. years, 5,000 years from now. If we just continue to grow our technology right. in the same pace that we are yeah. now, imagine a thousand, because we will, within 500 years, be able to create a simulation that you will not be able to tell between reality and a simulation. It's just... Mm-hmm. Right. Which logic. <laughs> right. And it leads you to wonder, has that already happened and are we in it? Yeah. Or is just the fabric of reality as Plato suggested? I mean, Plato basically to me already proposed simulation theory with the allegory of the cave. Of course. Of course. I, I would argue. I mean, I mean, that's the basis of the movie The Matrix, but I think it, it really people think that I think that allegory just applied to like the earth plane, but perhaps I mean in an age that didn't have computers, Plato really was talking the best he could about what you just said. Like, mm. no, it's not just like in civilization, there's certain people that can't see the, 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 the goodness or the truth. It's like, no, maybe all of this, the entire fabric of reality itself is like Maya or something like that from the Eastern tradition. So I think it's interesting. And, you know, the sources, um, they get more specific because I always tell people, Casey didn't just give these readings for fun. He was a Christian man who gave people past life readings to advance in their own personal development. And so for some reason, most of his readings focused on the final thousand years of Atlantis. Okay. And and the downfall. And a lot of his clients, he claimed had lived specifically at that time and he even said that many politicians, because he died during the end of World War II, he died in 1945. He said a lot of the people in this current struggle have come back from that time. Interesting. Well, like that Hitler also and people like this. And people were people have said too, the like, well, is that if you want to start getting into the past life situation where many past life of Atlanteans have come to this time, and that's one of the reasons why our technology has grown. Absolutely. Because there's because it makes no sense. We no. we were in the dark ages 500 years ago. Right. You know, and and like, you know, there was just Rome hung out for about a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And they did make some some jumps, man, but sure. nothing like we've no. had in the last hundred years. Nothing in history. No. The no. Egyptians hung out for thousands of years. Nothing even remotely close to right. what we've been able to do in the last hundred. So it's why now? Why is it happening now? Well, it's interesting because in 1886, Frederick Oliver is talking about that because he he's at least in non-trance life aware of like the technologies developing in, in 1886. I mean, the, his world had changed a lot and he would have been aware of, of the dynamo and things like this, probably. But during his channeling, uh, which is not his voice speaking, it's just him writing the person channeling through him says America is the new Atlantis and that many of you have come back now and that it's your duty to not basically destroy yourselves like you did then. But America is the new Atlantis. It's not literally where it was, which I should be very clear about, but the people, the culture is the same. And he's like, you will face the same challenges but you will reach the same technological level that Poside reached in my time 11,000 years ago. And I think, look around, 
look at Elon, look at Tesla in the 20th century, look at Nikola Tesla, look at all these people that are doing things that even when we were growing up would have seemed fantastical, like a rocket landing. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. Ro- <laughs> like what? I remember I saw that the first time. I was like, what is this? I thought it was a joke. I thought my friend had sent me a meme. I'm like, what is this? It doesn't even look real. It does. So, it does. It actually looks cartoony when it comes it back down like with the little, fake. with it the looks, little. It looks like yeah. the little legs are coming out. Like that doesn't make sense. No, <laughs> but, but there it, it is. is. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. And so I was like, "Wow!" Um, give, like you said, give that another hundred years. Where are we going to be? Where yeah, are we going to be? You know, it's it's remarkable. Now, is, is there any archaeological evidence anywhere that supports? The, anything dealing with atlantis or an ancient civilization sure. but specifically atlantis that's a great question and you know that's a chapter of the book where i mean i would argue that the great pyramid itself i would agree actually with what casey said casey said that was built from 10490 to 10390 bc that's the exact date casey gives and it's interesting cuz again i'm not sure casey was versed on the you know, Egyptian mythology turned papyrus. And somebody asked him, well, who built it? He said, well, there were, there was an advisor. And then there was the architect. He said, there was a man named Ra. And then there was another man named Hermes who built it. And of course, Hermes is Toth. And it's like, that's what the Egyptians anecdotally say, that Toth built the damn pyramid in the time after the reign of the demigods. And it's like, okay. And he ruled the land to the West. You know, and as Robert Boval discovered, those three pyramids are aligned to the constellation Orion, not today, but around the year 10,450. And it's like he didn't discover that in 1932. He discovered that in 1980. So how did a man, again, Sunday school teacher sitting on a couch, know that Toth built the pyramids in 10,390 B.C.? They were completed. How did he know that? I think because he's channeling some lived reality. So I would say the Great Pyramid is a standing megalithic example of Atlantean architecture. Um, how about the Mesoamerica? Did it, when did that happen? Yeah, that's interesting because Casey says that after the second destruction in 28,000 BC, when they overtuned the Firestone crystal and blew up all the substations. So again, another misuse of technology. Um, He says that they started migrations after the second one to the Yucatan. And he said those people eventually became the Maya. Well, the Aztecs, the Maya, and then there was, Mm -hmm. of course, in Peru. um, The Inca. The Inca, yeah, the Incas. And the Olmecs. And the Olmecs. Olmecs. Right. And, you know, in case he even talks about this, I I quote this very long, like three page transcript, just verbatim um, in the book where somebody asked him. So somebody had the sense to say, uh, we need to get him in a room and ask him very detailed questions specifically about Atlantis. So they told him in Waking Life, hey, we're going to do like an intense only Atlantis in Mesoamerica session. And thank God that was saved because it's incredible because he describes how going back even 25,000 B.C., that region, you know, where I live now, but particularly towards the Yucatan, 
had always been a mixture. He's like, it was a mixture of people from Lemuria. It was a mixture of people from Africa. It was a mixture of people from what he calls like the Norwegian lands. It was a mixture of people from Palestine. It was, you know, whatever that was then. And he says it was always a mixture. And he says, that's why you're going to find things that look like, you know, Hebrew, like a star of David, you know, at the temple of Ushmal, uh, pre-Columbian. You're going to see things that look Egyptian. You're going to see things that look, you know, like they found evidence that there's a connection between pottery in Japan and China yeah. and Mesoamerica. And it's like, well, how the hell did they do that? You know, um, well, it would have been easier if a they had this technology or there was a giant landmass, you know, five, six times the size of Australia where you could sail, you know, because I want to make it clear that not it, it was basically the same world we live in today. Like we have rockets that can land, but then we have people in the Amazon in canoes. It's not like everybody has access to the highest technology. And right. Casey and Oliver said that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, because when he's flying to India on his cigar shaped veil, he's like, we're passing over like an island with barbaric people. We're passing over a jungle where the people are looking at us like we're aliens. You know, and he's like, we're just Atlanteans. We are the pride of technology in the ancient world. You know, and then when he gets to India, the culture's advanced, but different. He's like, it looks simple, but he's like, these people could kill you with a thought and they don't need farms because they could just manifest food. You know, so it was like concurrent high, like one went mental, one went material. Right. right. You know, so it which makes just which, like, which, but that's the way sense. we are right now. But right exactly. now, the West, the West is still material. Exactly. And the East is still more mental, more spiritual, more inward bound. Right. And then, but there has been a cross-pollination between the two. Where now Just India, like back then. Yeah, India has now become, it's becoming more material. It's, 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 it's technology and it's growing as a, as, a, as a continent. But when like Yogananda came over uh, in the early 1900s and started mm. talking about yoga and meditation and and right. ascended masters and stuff like that. People were like, what the, what? <laughs> but, right. it, but that was the seeds that spawned where we are today. So there, and there's many others as well that did that. So it, it and that's another thing because a lot of people think that when you, when you hear the story of Atlantis, it's just like the entire world was Atlantis. Like, no, it, like you no. said, there were multiple cultures at yeah. various stages of development and evolution throughout right. the world, just like it is today. I mean, it's it's astounding because it must have seemed like a strange story to people living in the 30s, you know, and maybe oh that's God. maybe that's it's H. why it's H.G. Wells. It's H.G. Wells. It's H.G. Wells, yeah. you know, but today I think it's like finally time. And maybe that's just why the book, you know, took form in my mind after seeing that, you know, flying the, the rocket landing or something. I was like, OK, people could stomach some of these technological discoveries. Um you know, but, but but let me ask you though, why do you believe that people have such a difficult time? They look, they have no problem believing that there was a man who is the son of God who came on, walked on water, did sufficient water, did turn in water into wine, and had all these other things, or believe that there was a prince that found enlightenment underneath of, of a of a tree, right? And have no problem accepting billions, right? Except both of those stories. Without yeah. 
with, will fight to the death right to defend those stories but yet any of these other stories are hard to stomach why do you believe that well let me first say that uh, edgar casey would say and he did say in a transcript that those were the same people that that the soul that became jesus was actually like 35 different people including the buddha um who just come back in different places to help people but it's the same person but yeah, that's a great question because I've actually asked people that like it doesn't require any kind of leap of faith to believe anything in my book. All it requires is that you suspend the artificial timeline, not based on really any evidence except lack of artifacts, which, again, would not exist because this is 12,000 years ago. So anything made of aluminum is not going to last. 12,000 years. All you're going to find is megalithic architecture, you know? And I always tell people like when people say the pyramid, great pyramid, you know, was built in dynastic Egypt by Khufu. It's like that itself is a fantasy it's based on fantasy. nothing. Yeah. Based on a cartouche that Harold, that, that Harold Weiss probably wrote himself. You know, there is not one hieroglyph in no. all of Egypt. The tens of thousands of hieroglyphs have been found. In Egypt, right. not one has them building a pyramid no, or showing how it was constructed. You would think something that big because yeah. they talked about everything, man. Right. And those, they, they yeah, were, but they, they forgot that. They, yeah, they, they put Khufu, the, the though, the at the top of the king's chamber just to- The propaganda just on case. their own stuff that they did back in the day. They talked about everything. Everything. Except, except for this big, giant, megalithic structure, the largest thing ever yeah. created on the planet. Yeah, standing. they forgot that one. They never mentioned it once. No. I mean, you start looking at that kind of evidence, you start going, what, what the, it just doesn't line up, man. It just- no doesn't line up and i want to kind of dig into something you said there because that's another argument that a lot of people have for atlantis or even any advanced mm. like with graham hancock says any advanced civilizations of right. in the in past is that well why don't we find the ray gun or why don't we find <laughs> right. some ship or some artifact sure because if today all humanity left the planet mm -hmm. in ten thousand years there would be no signs nothing of us oh, of of uh, of us particularly the only no, thing that would exist probably would be like the hoover dam which was megalithically constructed maybe right, maybe right. that and they would maybe. be arguing and they would be arguing what it was for because right. they wouldn't know because they wouldn't know and maybe right. there are some other stone or some maybe and that's maybe. a big maybe and we don't even have we don't even have i know this from an architect friend of mine who says the cement the romans used if you can find like that formula, he's like, it's stronger than my cement that I use to build modern buildings. He's like, you know, it's true. Yeah. He yeah, said that. Yeah, he's like, I yeah. can't even make a building. Cause I asked him, I was watching him pour cement the other day on a construction site. And I was like, how long does that last? He's like, maybe a hundred years before you got to do another foundation or a retouch or something like that. And I'm like, oh, that's it, you know, on a modern. So how's the, how, how's the Coliseum still standing? Yeah. And he's like, well, because they had a much better cement that we don't even really they mixed it with some other type of sand and he's like i really don't even know but he's like when i used to visit uh italy as an architect my friend he's like i used to look at this building and be like god like this is better than our construction techniques today you know and that was ancient rome you know so it's like i think you're absolutely right and you know edgar casey's son um i 
include a great quote from him because he even says this with a tinge of like annoyance, probably from at being asked, like your dad says this and that. And he's like, look, let's say a tidal wave and a cataclysm swept across the United States right now. He goes, and in the year uh, 10,060, uh, a research team comes around, drills a four inch hole at the bottom of the ocean. He goes, they're going to find Manhattan. They're going to find a car. He goes, in fact, they would say America never existed at all. It was just that myth that people talked about. Right. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he's right. He's and absolutely right. right. You know? Well, look, I mean, they, they, there's something that they used to call um, black soil. Did you know about this in, the, in Mesoamerica? That they no. did, that, so it was this combination that the Maya used to do because they were like, because, because the Amazon was not fertile land. Back in the well, day. Well, hold that thought and continue. But I got to so, remember something after this. Thank you so, for telling me this. So it wasn't fertile land at that point. Mm. But they were able to create this soil mixed in with some sort of soot and other things that was so fertile that they mm. could plant it anywhere and it would become fertile land instantly. And they wow. have examples of it, but they just don't understand how it was even created. This is stuff that we're discovering now. And let's well, not see, even get to what what they burned, what the conquistadors burned in Mayan, oh my Mayan God. history. Well, we're I lucky. Mean, we we are lucky that we just have like that Chilambala, like things like that. Were a uh, nice priest said, "I got to put this away. I got to save this one <laughs> thing." You know, or whatever's on the walls, or whatever, or whatever's on the, on the wall. <laughs> but you know, it's so interesting, Alex, that you mentioned the the Fertilin. ancient art um, agriculture because. Again, not to just go on about this book, but it's it shows how powerful these clairvoyant sources are. So in A Dweller on Two Planets from 1886, channeled book, he's talking about coming back from India. And he goes, now we're traveling on our return. They go around the world, just sightseeing. He goes to Utah. He goes to the Tetons. He goes all over. He goes to Mid Lake Superior. He goes to all of these places. And he's like, we're sightseeing over the Amazon right now. Okay, and he says, this is from 1886. He says, you know, you all think that this is a pristine wilderness. And he goes, but it wasn't that way. He goes, we Atlanteans transported all the most of the crops and plants that you think are wild to the Amazon in my time. Okay, he said that in 1886. Well, three years ago, the BBC releases a press release. Scientists, team of international scientists shocked to discover that the Amazon has actually been farmed for tens of over 10,000 years, we now know, and probably crisscrossed with irrigation ditches. And it's like, how did a 17-year-old kid in 1886 know that? Unless he was in touch with something we don't really think is real, but we should. And so that's what I do in the book. Anytime a, anytime a statement is made. I go, here's the source. Or if there is no evidence, hey, there is no evidence. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But I was never able to categorically refute anything he said or Casey said about this timeline. It was just more information needed or bingo. Oh, wow. There is evidence of irrigation in the Amazon 10,000 years ago that we just discovered now. 
you know <laughs> so, so is there are, are there any modern scientific discoveries or theories that indirectly support or challenge the existence mm. of Atlantis to be the devil's advocate here sure you found you know I'm thinking off the top of my head um I mean not, not really especially not after Gobekli Tepe I think before Gobekli Tepe you could make a claim maybe and not, especially not after the discovery in what is it uh, in South Pacific and in, I believe Indonesia Borneo of Gunung, Pad, Gunung, Gunung Padang which they think oh is 20,000 years old and it's like yeah that thing is insane I saw it in ancient uh, apocalypse what's that all about yeah that's like another whole you know? other world I think like... I think maybe 20 years ago it was that's why I have such tremendous respect for people like Hancock who in 1995 was talking about this stuff before Gobekli Tepe and Gunung Padang were even discovered and so I think it's really difficult today, specifically with Gobekli Tepe. I think that's like if you still think that there were only hunter gatherers on Earth, it's not or that Gobekli Tepe. I heard somebody say in an article, oh, they were just brewing beer there and they just hung out there. We found evidence that they actually were it was just a brewery where hunter gatherers came to drink. I'm like, so that how did we'll they go lift? to any extent? <laughs> you know, how did we'll they go to lift? any extent? I don't know. 20 ton pieces of, of, of what is it, grant, whatever the damn well, they thing just, is. They just got drunk, Alex. They got a couple of lights. They got a couple and got a, lights. And they built a ramp, you know, just like in Giza. They built a ramp, Alex, that's, that doesn't exist. You know, a right. ramp and that's the, bigger than the pyramid itself that just disappeared into thin air. And then also, um, by the way, also, ch also chiseled in uh, really accurate uh, astronomical. <laughs> Yeah, uh, ideas is well. yeah, more more accurate than the Greenwich uh, we we use today. We were supposed to actually it was a conference, believe it or not, around the turn of the century where they were deciding what's going to be the international time count yeah. meridian, and they were going to pick Giza because they said this is more true than Greenwich. And at the last moment, they said Greenwich. We're going to use the Greenwich Tower or whatever. And again, yeah, they just you know they just well, uh, moved so it on. Right. And then also don't forget um, the pyramid, the dimensions of the pyramid, if you multiply it by a certain like the width of the pyramid mm -hmm. is the height of the earth in well, the dimensions the, the, or something the, like that. The actual scale of the pyramid is an integer. It, Christopher Dunn discovered this. It's a literal scale model of the weight of the earth. <laughs> so you and, know, the dynamic, which, and the dynamic and the dynamic. Right. And it divides the hemispheres, which, you know, you need in a tomb, Alex, you know, right. that's so important. Well, they've never found any, there's, there's just never found a body in there, man. They've never found a no. body or any, no. or, there's no hieroglyphic, there's no, no hieroglyphs inside of the pyramids. And it leads me, I guess, you know, to, to <laughs> kind of conclude this part of the discussion. It's why I spent so much time on like the psychology of the academic world. And, and, and not just academia, but any of these journalists from Slate or National Geographic, and there are some good ones, but I point out some cases where it's like all they have is ad hominem attacks and basically counting on your own ignorance of this material, you know, mm -hmm. because I, I really wanted to give this book to the world to show people like, look, if you were ever on the fence, like there are a couple just shut down type arguments you can make you know where if somebody said oh you believe in atlantis and i mean you could use what you said like 
Well, you believe a man walked on water and raised himself from the dead? I'm not saying he did or didn't, but I mean, billions of people believe that. Are they all crazy? Um, we don't even need that kind of leap of faith to just think, well, if modern humans have existed for at least a quarter of a million years with the same or greater brain capacity as us, why did it take us 193,000 years to learn how to farm? <laughs> that's a great question. Or Edgar Casey and Frederick Oliver are telling a story that's been lost to us and we've actually always been advanced or on varying levels of advancement, but that the current level of technology has existed dozens of times through dozens of cultures in dozens of destructions. And that we've always had electricity in different forms. We've always had internet in different forms because physics doesn't change as far as I know. And if the same physics can produce this today, then they could produce it in the past. You know, yeah, we still have the same materials. Same, It's the same like sandbox to create. So if we had the same brain quarter of a million years ago, what what what's happened? The, what's what's different between that and now? Yeah, nothing. Well, that's the question. Like, what? Nothing. Why didn't during the the Roman times when there was wealth and power and everything, we didn't make the kind of a kind of um, advances that we did today? Well, you know, there's a few strange um, things. Like, you know, like the Romans knew about steam power, but they only used it for toys. You know. And the ancient Greeks had on temples doors that opened, not automatically. You still had to start the machine, but they had steam powered doors on a certain temple, I believe, in Delphi to make people think the gods were opening the doors. So, and then like Archimedes had inventions that like levering of types of uh, types of levers that even to this day are incredibly advanced and cantilevers for that time. But I would argue. And I talk about this, I think, quite a bit in the book, that whatever did exist in terms of that record of that knowledge, whether it was deployed or kept for the priesthood or whatever, I do believe was taken to the Vatican or destroyed outright during the three destructions. One purposeful, the second one, the first, the fire that Julius Caesar started to save Cleopatra's ass from her crazy brother. And then the third pillaged by, you know, the first Muslims to take over Alexandria. So I think there probably were records of high technology and its use. They're just gone, you know, or exist or, or exist in or, the vault of the Vatican or they're in the basement. Yeah, of course, they took something. <laughs> hey, if they could take an obelisk, you know, from Heliopolis and bring it back to Italy, I'm sure they could take a few boxes of books on like alchemy. <laughs> I'm sure they have a couple of those down there in the basement, but they won't let me and you down there. So we'll never know. And one other thing that I've, I've started to come to understand too, you mentioned earlier that the polar, um, the poles started yeah. to shift in history. That's something that a lot of people don't grasp the understanding mm. of through time by nature, the poles, the magnetic poles shift the Northern pole. Sure. So what Antarctica at one point was not yeah. frozen. It wasn't a frozen wasteland as it is no. today. And and it, like perfect example as they've discovered that uh, Giza, the Giza Plateau, was once yeah. like the Amazon flourishing. When 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 they built the pyramid, according to Casey, it was a fertile grassland. 
Right, exactly. It wasn't all yeah. just desert and no. ramps. Wasn't, no. <laughs> so no. there's there's so, so other places could have been completely covered in ice, like yeah. according to according to uh, to Graham Hancock. Uh, half of North America, of, half of North America was under a two mile ice sheet. You know? Right. That that was so, just covered up. So and it just slowly. It, man, wh- there's so much what ifs in this. I mean, you going down this rabbit hole, man, must have been just exciting. And it was ter- terrifying. It was crazy. It was crazy. crazy. It was like a nervous breakdown every day that <laughs> I turned into a book. You know, I guess right because you're just like, no, that can't be it, and then, and then you start connecting the dots here and there. It's like almost yeah. a, like a like a, a detective. You're a detective. You're a historical well, yeah. detective. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's you know that's how I was trained. I was trained by some really wonderful, like really intelligent professors who really like pushed me. You know, if I would be doing any investigation, they're like, look, this is great to bring in secondary sources, but like go back to the originals with anything, even in my traditional study of the Enlightenment, like go back to a letter Thomas Jefferson wrote to his friend in Paris and like read it and really see what he said. Don't just read a critique of it or an article like you could come up with a new idea, you know, and I never forgot. That's really how historians should should do it. And that's why I had to go back and read A Dweller on Two Planets. 10 times, probably the only person on earth and sit there like a weirdo and read 500 channeled transcripts from Edgar Casey from the archives of the ARE, because it's not enough to just read a book on this is what Edgar Casey said about Atlantis. Cause I'll be honest with you. A lot of those authors didn't do a close reading. You know, they did a great job of, Hey, look, here's in general what he said. But I think, to be honest, this is one of the most detailed, like meticulous studies of how clairvoyant evidence lines up with, quote unquote, hard science, you know, that that I have seen, because that's what I was trying to do. In your opinion, what is the most important unanswered question about Atlantis? Oof. Does the Hall of Records, as Casey and others have said, exist? And if so, will we... The physical yes. one you're talking about? Right, because Casey said, you know, famously there was one of them, one repository was under the Sphinx between the Sphinx and the Nile River. Right. And if that is indeed true, um, I mean, we would probably have to take years just like we did with the Dead Sea Scrolls to translate it. But if that is indeed true and you could see like a preserved, you know, uh, Casey says there's like musical instruments and things like this made out of oracalcum, you know, which is a famous metal that Plato mentioned. If we could find something like that, that had like even perhaps like a crystal hard drive that could be like accessed, you know, like uh, imagine <laughs> like welcome to Atlantis, I, you know. Very, very Krypton like. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, but it's like I've always wondered, like, you know, I mean, most of what Casey said, I found to be pretty accurate. So when he said that there is a hall of records that is protected by an electrostatic energetic barrier that cannot be passed until humanity evolves to that frequency, it will kill anybody that tries to enter the chamber. Well, perhaps it has been discovered and discovered to be lethal to 
that team perhaps that entered it. It's not impossible that Zahi Hawass and friends have been aware of that mm-hmm. and maybe got close to it and realized like, oh my God, there is an electrostatic or some sort of frequency barrier, which is a technology. It's not mystical. It's a technology. And if that were the case, I think that is a really fascinating mystery, you know, um, the search for the Hall of Records. And, you know, but again, it's like, because they'll predictively program you with an Indiana Jones movie or something, you know, like the crystal skull, it's like, oh, you think you're going to find a crystal skull? And it's like, well, crystal skulls have been found, some fake, some real, but the real ones we can't explain. So which came first, a crystal skull or Indiana Jones? <laughs> like, oh, that, that book you wrote sounds like Star Wars. Well, which came first, a channeled book in 1886 or Star Wars wow. A New Hope in 1977? Like, let's be honest, man. I well, think uh, that we're on to well, something. Well, I do have to say that the new Indiana Jones is fantastic. So, uh, oh, <laughs> okay. it was a lot I don't of fun. watch. I don't watch it much was, of those anymore. I don't watch. So the brand new one just came out. So much fun. Uh, oh, okay, <laughs> you have to watch it when it comes he's out. He's still going. How old is Indiana Jones in this he one? Like, he's got like seventy. He's oh 80, 81. He's actually in real life. I think he's like 81, 82. Wow. Um, they, he's like in his late seventies in the movie and they address it very clearly. What's going <laughs> on. <laughs> Just like, oh, okay. this is, but it's a lot of fun anyway. Um, all right. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. Uh, I ask all my guests, cause I could keep talking to you about Atlantis for another five no, hours. Sure. We've already so. gone a long time. Gone <laughs> so over time. So we yeah. can keep going, but these are a couple questions. To ask all my guests. Uh, what is your definition of living a fulfilled life? Uh, doing what you love every day. If you had a chance to go back in time and talk to little Michael, what advice <laughs> would you give him? Keep going. You're not crazy. <laughs> How do you define God? However you want to. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? To ask what the ultimate purpose of life is. And hopefully get an answer. <laughs> Hopefully. I don't know if that's possible, Alex. <laughs> I can't answer that question right now, Alex. I'm still and, looking. And where can people find out more about you, your book, and the work that you're doing, sir? You could go to my website, Michael Leflem, uh, last name, one word, dot com. And there's a link to the book. And you can find the book on Amazon. And um, it's also actually available now. I translated it into Spanish under Visiones de la Atlantida. So oh, you can wow. find it in Spanish as well on and on on Amazon in English and as an audiobook and Kindle and things oh, like that. Is it, there's an audiobook? Yeah, there's an audio oh, audiobook. And actually right now working on the audiobook in Spanish with the guy with the guy. So that's awesome. All that's format. Funny. You got no excuse. You can read it in any format or listen to it. So and um what is your parting message to the audience about the history of Atlantis? You know, just keep an open mind. You'd be really surprised what we don't know you know and that's why i think i opened the book with my parting quote here alex which is from socrates you know i'm the wisest man alive you know because i know one thing and that's that i know nothing you know and it's the tone of the book and it's the tone of how i operate and i think true knowledge cannot be Anything more than the search, you know, for for the search is is indeed the objective when you're coming to a subject like this. Who are we to say exactly where, what, how this civilization existed? All we can say is 
it looks to be the case that there was something and it's not just a myth. Michael, it has been a pleasure chatting with you, man, about Atlantis. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I appreciate you and what you're trying to do for the world, my friend. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Alex. It's been a great time. I want to thank Michael so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 319. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.